There's a lot to worship God for this morning, man. Ooh, Rex Burkhead's talent. Rex Burkhead. Well, we're not worshiping Rex Burkhead, though. You know that, right? Yeah, okay. Just, just clarifying. His God-given talent. That's right. I know, after the game last night, I was like, man, I can't wait to go worship tomorrow morning. There's a lot to sing about. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite things in the world is just listening to this community sing. Like, man, there's just something about God's people coming together and just worshiping. Uh, that is just awesome. And so, if you don't know, my name's Aaron, and, uh, and I'm a pastor here, and uh, absolutely love this church. But, uh, you know, last week I was homesick, and Kevin did a great job. He stepped in last second. I called him at like 9 o'clock over the toilet and just said, man, can we show a video or something? Like, would that be totally inappropriate? And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll put something together. It's like, really? Like in an hour and a half? He's like, yeah, yeah, if you don't mind, I'll just do a message, you know, that I'm somewhat familiar with. And he stepped up and did an incredible job. I mean, so, yeah, it's incredible to have a team like that and friends like that that have your back. It's really cool. But as I, uh, as I got ready to come back and rejoin the community this morning, I thought of, uh, thought of a story about Johnny. And uh, Johnny woke up one Sunday morning and he said, Mama, I ain't going to church. I don't want to go to church. You can't make me go. And Mama said, you hush your mouth, child. It's Sunday morning, you know, you go to church. You're going to church. He said, no, Mama, I ain't going to church. I don't want to go to church. And I got two good reasons. They don't like me, and I don't like them. She said, it is Sunday morning, and you have to go to church, and I got two good reasons. You're 48, and you're the pastor. <laughs> and I, I don't share that because uh, I don't like the people in this room. <laughs> in fact, uh, my favorite people in the world are in this room right now. And uh, the people I'm raising my kids with and doing life with. And, and I love this church. But to be completely honest with you, um, personally, uh, just as a, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, as a, as a man, um, I'm just going through a funky season right now. And um, I don't know what it is. I, we started this church seven months ago. And, uh, and I'm just learning that, that starting a church is a lot, it's a lot like getting married. And there's all this work that goes into all the prep stage, and there's all this stress and the excitement, and you have this picture in your mind of what it's going to be like. Uh, and then the big day comes, and it's awesome, you know, um, it's perfect. And then you go into this, uh, like, honeymoon stage, you know, and, and everything's seen through rose-colored glasses. And, you know, in marriage, I, I remember our honeymoon stage, it's like you just thought it was going to be like that forever, and you have this vision of just, like, endless sex and romance for the rest of your life. <laughs> You know, and then sooner or later, uh, sometimes sooner than later, the honeymoon stage comes to this abrupt end, and you realize, oh, crap, this is hard work. You know, if we're going to make this work, if this is going to be good, I'm really going to have to invest a lot of myself in this. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at, like, as a, as a human, as a pastor, uh, as a, you know, as a church. And we're getting past, like, that honeymoon stage, and all of a sudden, like, we're just getting to know one another and figuring out that, man, like, this is messy, you know? Community is messy. People are so messy. The church, there's just no way around it. Church is so messy because uh, it's, you know, full of sinful people and it's led by very sinful people. And, uh, and it's hard. And so, like, I find myself in this, in this weird, like, season where, where feeling like that, that initial passion and excitement and, and, and keeping the main thing the main thing is all of a sudden really, really hard. You know, uh, and, and I know it's, it's probably a little different for you, you know, me being a, a pastor and, and that kind of thing. But, but maybe you experienced that, you know, where, 
It's like you, you think back to, to what you used to feel and what it used to, to feel like to follow Jesus. You know, maybe it was like when you first made that decision to trust your life to Christ. And you remember that, that excitement and that passion and that, that feeling of urgency. And, and you just knew that for the rest of your life, you were going to run after Jesus with everything that you had. Uh, and, and God was going to take care of you and do some great things. You know, but then when you think about where you're at now, it's just it, most days, maybe if you're really honest, it feels like you're just going through the motions. You know, like it feels more like routine and getting excited is, is all of a sudden really hard. And you don't really know when it happened. You know, or maybe you look around at other people in your life and you see people who just, they seem like so passionate all the time. And you're like, why can't I be like that? You know, they just seem more spiritual. They seem more committed. Their prayer life is better. Like everything seems better. They're more Christian. I mean, whatever it is. And you just wonder, like, did I miss something along the way. Like, I know in my mind what I'm supposed to, how much I'm supposed to care, and I know what I'm supposed to feel, but what's happening in here, it doesn't feel that way. There's a disconnect, and I don't know where I went wrong. Um, apparently, this is something that's happened for a long time, because the, the, the character we're going to look at this morning as we continue our series in Judges is a guy who experienced this uh, throughout his life. Uh, he was a guy who was raised in a Christian home, uh, not Christian, but, you know, in a God-honoring home. Jesus wasn't on the scene just yet. Uh, but he was raised in a God-honoring home. He was taught to pray. He was taught things about God. Uh, and God called him to do something great. And yet, for some reason, for he, he never made the connection, right? He never made the connection between what he knew in his head and what he experienced in his heart and in his life. And as a result, he never stepped into what God had for him. He never experienced the, the fulfillment of stepping into that calling, and he just struggled for most of his story. Apparently, God knew that this is something that we would struggle with, uh, and so he gave us stories like this. And so this morning, we're going to look uh, at the story of Samson, all right? And Samson, uh, if you grew up in church, all right, you know Samson, right? You, know, you probably know a few things about Samson. Samson's the most popular uh, out of all the judges, right? He got the most press time easily. Uh, if you grew up in Sunday school especially, there's so much in children's curriculum about Samson. Because he was, he was a very epic character. Like, he did things that were pretty incredible. He was very quirky. Um, he was, I like to think of him as he was like the James Bond of the ancient Near East. Um, any James Bond fans in the house? Huh? Huh? Don't let Pierce Brosnan ruin it for you. Come on. All right, James Bond is, is all right. all right. Sean Connery, I agree. Sean Connery was the best. Uh, but James Bond, the James Bond films had done pretty all right for themselves. Uh, over 20 films uh, have been on the story of James Bond. Uh, he always has these really cool gadgets. Uh, you know, it's, his story is always full of fast cars and even faster women. You know, and he, last I checked, he saved the world 23 times and he has yet to mess up his hair. All right, that, that was the kind of guy... Uh, that Samson was. All right, Samson was uh, young, he was strong, he was cocky, uh, yet he was good and he, he, he knew it, you know, uh, and he was a ladies' man, right? He didn't just get the girl, uh, he got the girls. And, and he, had, he had a nose for trouble. Um, he had this, this innate ability to, just at the last second, uh, get himself out of trouble, and you wonder, like, how in the world he managed to do that. Um, he was, in many ways, a larger-than-life character. And if, if Samson was alive today, um, he would have been, you know, a professional star athlete. Um, he would have been a, a movie star uh, starring in, you know, a, a summer blockbuster action flick or perhaps a Navy SEAL or a heavyweight boxing champion. 
he would have been the kind of guy that would have been on ESPN the magazine or on the cover of GQ uh, because he just naturally, everybody was attracted to this guy, right? He just, he rose head and shoulders above the rest. And uh, that's just the kind of guy uh, that he was. And more than just being blessed with natural talent, um, we find that God had actually given him that talent for a reason, that he was destined for great things. So if you have uh, your Bible, open up to, to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some. Jacob's uh, got them in his hands. Just wave them down and get you one. But Judges chapter 13, uh, this begins our account of Samson. Verse 1 says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistine for 40 years. Now a certain man of, of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, and she was unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. All right, and, so, and then the chapter goes on. It's actually a really, really long, uncharacteristically long chapter preceding Samson's birth. All right, and, and we find that the angel of the Lord shows up and, and, the, and Samson's father asks that the, the angel come back and teach them how they're to raise this boy up. And, and there's this huge thing of fire, and the, and the angel goes up in the flames, and they think they're going to die, and it's this really epic account, but, but it's so long. It's an entire chapter telling nothing about what Samson did, but everything about who Samson was supposed to be, and, and Samson gets a lot of press time. He gets four chapters, but one chapter alone is just want, is impressing upon us, the readers, uh, the extraordinary circumstances of his birth. Right? Whoever wrote this story wanted us to know right, that Samson was special that he was destined for great things, that he, he was created for a purpose, that he was going to be the next judge. That was what he was created to do, and nothing else was ever going to fill uh, that void in his soul, right? Nothing else except for serving his God and doing what he was created to do, right? And so that's how our story uh, begins. We're told in verse 24 that sure enough, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson, and he grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in uh, these different areas that I won't try to pronounce, right? <laughs> That's called cheating. But we're told that this is, this is his calling, right? That, and, and it's telling us that, sure enough, these things are coming to fruition. Samson's born. God is with him. He's, he's got this extraordinary gift of strength, and he has been created to do this one thing. But, but it tells us that this great call in his life, as it always does, is going to come at a great cost, or that he's been chosen, not because of anything he's done. Right? God doesn't love Samson because he would be just a wonderful guy and he had earned it. But God chose him uh, by no doing of his own. And, and one side note, which is really cool, is you know, we've been looking at all these different judges. And up until this time, all the other accounts of the judges, uh, you know, the people, the, there's this cycle we've talked about where the people turn from God, they start worshiping other gods, uh, they just are blatantly disobedient and do all these you know, horrible things, really spit in God's face, essentially. Um, and then they suffer. And eventually they turn to God, they crowd to God, and God in his goodness, sure enough, raises somebody up to deliver them eventually. But Samson's story is different, right? In, in the book of Judges, we find this happening morally, 
right? It's just going down, 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 and then in Samson's story, we have the, like, just flames, you know? Um, he's kind of the climax of the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, uh, or in Samson's story, the people never cry out to God. Like, they never do. Right? They've walked so far away from what God desires for them. And they're so disobedient for so long that even under intense oppression and suffering, like, they never, they never cry out to God for help. But the really cool thing is God still raises up a deliverer. Like, God, it's so cool, and it's just such a testimony. What, what does that say about the God that we serve? That even though they never crap for help, right, they never repent, they never ask for God's help, God just refuses to watch them suffer helplessly, and they raise up Samson. And so this is to be Samson's destiny, but this great call in his life comes with a great cost. Right? For one, he's supposed to align his life with God's truth. Right? And so it says that uh, the boy is to be a Nazarite. Right, so what a Nazarite was in that time um, is that it was kind of like fasting. Right, so if you were going to really press into what God had for you, maybe seek what he desired for a certain season of your life, or you're really going to just ask for his special blessing on a certain work, uh, you would take this vow uh, called the Nazarite vow. And there's three things that you, you just couldn't do during that time. Um, you couldn't touch anything that was dead. Uh, you couldn't drink any alcohol. Uh, and you couldn't have your hair cut. Three weird things. I don't know why, you know, God chose those things. But it was just a part of the Nazarite vow. It was a time of, of choosing not to jump in and do certain things in order to press into what God had for you. And so it says that, you know what, Samson's supposed to do this for life, right? It wasn't just going to be a season. He was to be holy and, and set apart. And so part of the great cost of him stepping into this call in his life is that he was to allow God's truth to shape what he did do and what he didn't do. All right, secondly... Um, He's to take the lead, or he's dedicated to God from the, the womb, right? He is, he's, he is supposed to be holy and set apart. So he is, can't just rely on his own strength. He is to be very selfless and rely on God's strength, right? He needs to become a leader worth following. And thirdly, service, right? He, he's called to lay down his life in service of other people. God gives him a number of things. God gives him time. God gives him energy. God gives him great strength. God gives him resources. And he has been created for this one thing. He has been given this great destiny, and he is to lay down his life for the good of other people. Ultimately, this had nothing to do with Samson. This wasn't about Samson. This wasn't about Samson having a cool story, Samson having, God having big plans for Samson life, Samson's life. This was about the people who were suffering. And Samson was to uh, lay down his life for the good of others. Very, very important, very interesting because uh, of the parallels with our own story, right? We're supposed to allow God's truth to shape what we do and don't do. Uh, to be, uh, allow God to shape our character, right? Relying on God's strength, not our own, and to lay down our life in serving other people, right? This was Samson's call. But the cost was very great, right? And we, we're given every reason to believe that Samson will be successful, right? He's essentially been given the keys to the city, and, and it's cool because God doesn't, he doesn't have to pray and ask God to bless what he's doing. God's, God has already adopted the idea. He's just waiting for Samson to get on board. Like, basically, all he has to do is stay the course. And so we're given this whole chapter talking about his calling. has nothing to do with what Samson's done or not do, done. just has to do with what he's supposed to do, who he's supposed to become. And then immediately what we're going to find, uh, I'll just spoil it for you right now. He never does it. He never does it. And what we find in the three chapters that follow is one of the greatest tragedies in all the Bible. Right? Never have we seen a character start out with more potential uh, than Samson or more raw talent. Uh, but immediately, immediately find out that, you know what? 
It's not going to happen for Samson, right? It's not going to turn out how God desires for it to happen. Chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. She's pretty hot. Now get her for me as my wife. Right? It doesn't say that. We had a great conversation. We really connect on a deep level. Um, I saw her. She's the one. Go get her for me. And his father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Uncircumcised? All right, that's an Old Testament way to say they're not believers. They're not righteous. They don't care about God. Uh, what are you doing? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. All right? That, it, that stands in direct... Other, other translations say, she is right in my eyes. Right? And so if you were an ancient reader and you were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, which you would be if you were a Jew, right, you would have immediately thought of all the Old Testament passages that talk about doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. Doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. And Samson said, no, she's the one. Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. Now remember, back up just a second to what we just read in the entire chapter before. That he is called to deliver his people from who? Which people? The Philistines. Exactly. And what does he do? He goes to a Philistine village, sees a woman that apparently is pretty hot, and he says, that's what I want. Right? He gives a whole new meaning to sleeping with the enemy. That's what he wants. Right? And so immediately we're clued into the fact that he's not stepping into this calling. And it only gets worse from there. All right? Also, I'll just say this. All right? they, were, they were not, uh, as, a, as a part of Israel, right? it was prohibited to marry unbelieving foreigners, right? God made it very clear that they were not to be unequally yoked, that they were to marry uh, those who feared God, all right? So we knew he was wrong there, all right? Secondly, your parents arranged your marriage. They were a part of that. That's part of protecting you and making sure it was a wise decision, right? Not our culture. That's cool. The Bible doesn't say it has to be that way. But in Old Testament times, that's how it was laid out, right? Samson doesn't want that. He sees a woman. She's the one. She's right in my eyes. I like her. Go get her for me. Completely disrespects his parents, right? He's off. Uh, doing his own thing. And, and immediately we just see this tragedy start to unfold. And in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father. Oh, by the way, I love this. This is one of the most epic accounts in all the scriptures. This is so cool. Uh, it says, uh, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father uh, nor his mother what he had done. All right, that's pretty epic. That's cool. All right. That's, there's nothing else to say. That's just really cool. And it's given us, really, what it's doing is it's showing us his potential. Right? It's showing us the incredible God-given strength that he has. Right? And that's what he's supposed to use uh, to deliver the suffering people. Uh, but, of course, he doesn't. And, and immediately, um, immediately, in the very uh, like next verse or two, uh, what we find is it says shortly thereafter, or sometime after, uh, Samson was walking by the carcass of this lion. And a swarm of bees was in there, um, and there's honey in there. And just like he had done with the young woman in Timnah, he looks down, he knows he's not supposed to touch anything dead. It's about a part of his Nazarite vow. Uh, but he's hungry, and it looks good. And he decides to take it for himself. All right, so immediately, once again, I mean, this, this story comes at you very fast. It's like, Oh, my goodness. Like, how many, how many times can he go wrong and choose uh, what's disobedient in God's eyes? So we find him immediately break one of his Nazarite vow. In the very next verse, it says this. And Samson made a feast there, as was customary for the bridegrooms. Now, again, if you're, in, if you're reading this and you're in the ancient Near East, 
right, you spoke Hebrew, you would see the word mishte when it talks about uh, the feast, right, which, which especially means a feast that includes alcohol, all right? So it's telling us that he's drinking alcohol. So the very next verse, all right, second Nazarite vow, all right, not respecting it. And then, so just, just think about this. This is how tragic this is. Just 10 verses into Samson's life story, he's tried to marry an unbelieving Philistine woman, uh, the very oppressors that he's been called to deliver Israel from. Uh, he has totally disrespect his, disrespected his parents uh, and demanded a wife of his own choosing. He has broken two out of three of his Nazarite vows. And by the end of the chapter, in addition to all these, uh, he will have followed through on that desire to marry uh, his enemy. Um, he will have uh, killed 30 men and taken their clothes uh, for a, a bet that he lost. Right? He lost a bet because of said wife, and, uh, and then he goes and kills 30 men to get their clothes and pay off his debt. Um, and, oh, yeah, and then while he's out doing that, uh, his wife is given away to one of, one of his wedding attendants. Right? So apparently he's having issues with choosing good friends as well. Right? And so it's this, it's this really epic tragedy. And, and we don't have time to get into the whole story because there's so many small stories in Samson's story. But he starts doing some pretty pretty legendary things, like some things that really propel him uh, into the epic category of, as far as biblical characters are concerned. And real quick, just, and I would encourage you, read this. Like, open up your Bible, Judges, end of the book of Judges, read it, because it's so many cool stories. But some of the things that he, he does, just real quick. All right, he captures 300 foxes, uh, ties their tails together, and then he fastens a torch, uh, and he torches all the fields. Of the, of the Philistines who gave away uh, his wife to his friend. Um, burns their fields, their, their vineyards, their olive groves. Um, then, um, when his wife and his father are burned to death for that, uh, he viciously slaughters many of them in retaliation, we're told. Then, in one of the most epic battles uh, in the Old Testament, he, uh, he's given over by his own people into the Philistine hands, and with nothing but a, the jawbone of a donkey, he kills a thousand of them. Pretty epic. That's pretty cool. All right, and then uh, he's ambushed while he's sleeping with a prostitute. All right, the issues continue. Uh, he narrowly slips away, and then he actually rips the doors off the city gate, and he carries them like 30 miles away for no apparent reason other than just to take them off, right? <laughs> and then he hooks up with a third Philistine woman, all right? Again, James Bond, total playboy, and uh, apparently talks them into tying her, <laughs> her into tying him up because that's normal. Uh, and then he's surprised when his enemy eventually betrays him uh, and he's given over into the, the enemy's hands, right? And, and we all know the story, many of us, probably most of us, of Delilah uh, who hands him over uh, to his enemies and cuts off his hair, um, which was the third of the Nazarite vows that he broke. Um, and it just turns into this very epic uh, tragedy, right? This guy that had so much potential, but he never owns God's call on his life. And at the end of his life, here's what we're told. Uh, in verse 21 of chapter 16, we just get a small uh, snippet of, of where he's at up in, near the end of his story. And it says that the Philistines seized him. Uh, they gouged out his eyes and they took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. You know, so the end of, at the end of his story, right, we, we were given a chapter talking about this great call in this man's life that had nothing to do with him. It's all about him laying down his life for other people. And at the end of his story, we find 
then nothing has changed in Israel. Absolutely nothing. The people are still suffering. They're still being oppressed. And rather than rallying the people, right, rather than leading them, delivering them, the text doesn't even say that Samson ever even tried. No army is ever formed. No resistance is put together. A meeting is never had. He just continues doing his own thing. He's so, he never gets past himself. He's just completely self-absorbed. Even the feats that we're told in the story, and we're, obviously we're looking at the story like from 10,000 feet, we're zooming out um, to see actually what's happening here. But even in every one of those feats, and I encourage you to read them, it's always motivated by his own embarrassment and his own, his own desire to get even. Right? It's always about revenge. It has absolutely nothing to do with delivering the people, and he never does it. He never lives into this calling, and never in his life do we ever hear him admit a mistake? He never, we don't see any evidence of him ever being repentant. Even when he loses his eyesight, right? We find him at the end of his life. He's blind, right? They've gouged out his eyes, which is awful, right? He's, he's, he's a slave. We find that he's weak. He's lost his God-given strength. Uh, it's, it's gone. Um, and he's completely depressed and suicidal. Right? He wants to take his own life, and eventually he does. And... It's incredibly depressing. And, and one of the things that we, we find in Samson's story is, is, you know, Samson, he knew all the right answers. He was raised in a religious environment. He, he spent a lot of time in environments like this growing up. He heard God talked about a lot. He knew what the scriptures said. He knew about God. He knew about his destiny. His, his parents made that clear. And he never lived into that. When it came down to it, he just really didn't care all that much. He knew all the right answers that had absolutely no impact on his life. He could talk the talk, but in the end, he just didn't care enough to go all in. What Samson never came to grips with is this, and this is, this is where I want to just hone in on this morning. And when I read the story of Samson, Samson never came to grips with the fact that doing the right thing always costs us something. Doing the right thing always costs us something. God's love and grace is free. Right? We talk about it a lot in church. But living in that grace, accepting God's gift of grace and following Jesus comes at great cost. And Samson never, he never really resolved this. Right? He, was, he was interested in spiritual things as long as it served his own self-interest. But the moment he saw something he wanted, the moment he saw a hot girl, the moment he saw you know, some honey and he was hungry, the moment he wanted something, the moment that his faith required something that was uncomfortable and cost him something, he was out. I mean, have you ever noticed that when you see something that you really want, how easy it is to, to work hard for that? You know, I have, uh, when we started this church, we've been fundraising and, you know, doing all these different things when we were getting going. Um, and I've sold, like, had to pawn off, like, a lot of different stuff. So like, I sold my guitar, which still makes me sad, and, and sold all these different things. Um, but I have this flat screen TV in our living room that I'm not willing to part with. You know, and I love this TV. And, like, we watch, you know, we have people over, and I can plug my laptop into it, and, and we watch, like, the other night we had a bunch of people over, we were watching, like, Jim Gaffigan and, and uh, SNL Digital Shorts and just, you know, having a great time. And I love that TV, right? And I'm willing to make sacrifices for that TV. And someday I'm going to have my Jeep Wrangler. I am. I'm just telling you right now, let it be said, let the record show, at some point I will have my Jeep Wrangler, right? It, we, we understand when it comes to physical material things, when it comes to our jobs, we understand that it takes incredibly hard work to get what you want. Or we have a good friend who's a part of this community named Sam. Right, Sam is studying to, to be a dentist. Uh, and it seems like every time we get something together, um, she is studying her butt off. 
Right? She is working so incredibly hard. I think if I remember right, Ross told me by the time she's done uh, with her education, she's going to have like $100,000 plus in school debt. And uh, she's logged an incredible amount of hours in the lab and all these different things. Right? But we understand, and she understands, right, to get that job, this high-paying job, great job, to get any great job, right, it takes an incredible amount of work an incredible amount of personal investment on our part. Same is true with the house that you want, with the job that you want. We get this almost intuitively, right? But except when it comes to our faith. You ever notice that? When it comes spiritually, for some reason, right, we've been raised to believe that we're entitled to God's love. That, that because he is God, he has to love us, you know? And so, like, there's this sense of entitlement. And, and we've, been, we've been taught to tell our story in this narcissistic way, this self-centered way, right? If you ask people, why did Jesus come, right? They'll usually say something to the extent of, oh, he came to die on the cross for my sins so I can go to heaven. Like, do you hear how narcissistic that sounds, right? And, and so the moment that we commit our lives to Christ and we step into that story, right, we're living out a narcissistic narrative. Right? And when we talk about God's grace and love and we tell people that God's grace is free. And the truth is it is, Right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need God's grace. We're all on even ground. But what we fail to tell people sometimes is that living in that grace and living out God's calling comes at an incredibly great cost. It costs us something. Doing the right thing, it always costs us something. I mean, Jesus was always saying things that made people uncomfortable. He was always upping the bar on what it meant to honor God. Right? He was always talking about sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Right? And you're just like, oh, he meant that metaphorically. Right, yeah, he did. I didn't see that, but apparently it was in the footnote, you know? Or, he, or he, like when he talks about what it means to follow him, he said this, he said uh, in Matthew, um, Matthew 16, 24, right? He said, whoever wants to follow me must pick up his cross. Right? Whoever wants to be my disciple must pick up his cross and follow me. Right? The cross, he's saying, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Right? The cross that, that symbolizes this total selfless abandonment, total self-sacrifice for the good of other people. And he's saying, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Right? One of my favorite passages, actually, I shouldn't even say it's my favorite passage because it makes me so uncomfortable every time I read it, uh, but it's so challenging, right? And it talks about, we talk about heaven, right? That Jesus died on the cross for us to go to heaven. And then we read passages like this, and I just think it kind of blows them to smithereens, right? In Matthew 25, Right, talks, Jesus says this, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Right? And then he talks about this. Like, when do we see you? When do we do these things? He said, what you did, when you did this for the least of these, you did that for me. Right? And Jesus is saying, this is what faith looks like. This is what following Jesus looks like. That at the end of our life, when we stand before God, he's not going to say, oh, did you believe all the right things? Right? Did you have the perfect theology on paper? Did you pray the magic prayer? Were you a part of the magic perfect church? Right? He's not going to say something like that. Right? He's going to look at, how did you live? How did you live? I put you there for a reason. I gave you a great calling. 
right? I put you in the midst of brokenness and despair, and I gave you the cross, and I gave you the Holy Spirit, and I gave you authority to live for me, right? I, I gave you your words, power, and authority. I gave you the ability to do incredibly life transformational things. All you had to do was be faithful. Were you faithful with what I gave you? You know, it's, it's incredible when you read the Bible. You can't get away from, from it talking about the poor. It's everywhere. It's obnoxious, right? If you think prosperity gospel, that God just came to bless you and bless you and bless you and give you everything and protect you and keep you in a bubble, all these things, it blows it up. Like, you can't read the Bible and land there. Because there's literally over 2,000 verses that talks about the poor. The poor in spirit and the poor in stature. Right? It's like every 16th verse is talking about the poor. Apparently, how we respond to the needs around us is pretty important to God. And it is, in, it is interconnected to what it means to be his people. You know, this week I was talking to a, a couple who are part of this community. And, and we, were, he, we were just having lunch, and, and he was just telling me about some of the things that God's doing in his marriage. And they started serving at um, this, this ministry uh, with, with teenage, teenage moms. Um, most of them, you know, are, are single and on their own, and these gals are literally 15 through 19. And uh, they just started showing up, you know, and just started serving a little bit. I think they started, like, you know, serving Kool-Aid or whatever they served there. And, uh, and it started out pretty small. Uh, but then God started doing something here. And they got started getting to know these girls and know their stories. And, and before they knew it, you know, they were throwing parties at their house uh, for these moms. And, and uh, for those of them who have kids, for their kids. And they're grilling out and they're renting inflatables. And, and just trying to give them some sense of, of normalcy. You know, just loving on them sacrificially. And, and it's amazing what God's doing in his life. Because they, they got to know this, this one particular gal. Uh, she's a senior at Lincoln High, and uh, 19 years old, and she's going to have a baby here in like two, three weeks. And because of the way that they've just started serving in the small things, uh, God's doing something here. And, and this gal, um, they, picked, they started giving her rides around town because she didn't have a car, and, um, and they saw where she lives. And she literally lives like in the cement room um, with a number of extended family uh, on like this concrete floor, and, and that is where she's going to raise this this child as it stands right now. Uh, and God's just been messing them up about it. And so they started talking about it as a couple, like we have a house, like we have room, you know, we can make room. And, and so we started talking about this, and and it was so cool. And I just started, you know, picking his brain. I said, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable, right? I mean, you know, this is going to this is going to cost you something, right? Like, this is going to kind of throw off the nice little happy family dynamic you got going on. Uh, it's going to be uncomfortable. And he started talking to me about this girl, and he said, you know, she is talking about going to college. But we both know that as a 19-year-old single mom, there's, she's not going to college. Not if she's on her own, and she's responsible for raising her kid and providing for a kid and trying to go to school. Like, she just has no idea uh, just how close to impossible that is. And so me and my wife started talking. We're like, you know what? Not, we, can give her, we can give her a place to live, and we can help watch her kid and make it actually possible for her to go to college and get a good job. And, and, and it could not just change her life. It could change this child's life and her child's child's life. And just talking about legacies. And then he said something, and I just love this. I love this. He said, we just kept talking about it, and in the end, he said, we just felt like if, the, if we can do something and we follow Jesus, how can we not? How can we not? 
That's, and I just thought, that is what it sounds like to follow Jesus. Like, that is what it looks like. Two nights ago, almost the exact same conversation, different couple, different scenario, different need. Right, a couple in this room, and we're talking about foster care and the great need that is there. Um, and, and they were talking about, you know what, we have th- this desire. Um, we just feel like we need to do something. There's all these foster kids. Uh, they're jumping from home to home. They're not being loved on. They're not being cared for. Um, and we know that we can do something. And, and so we just feel like if we can do it, why wouldn't we? And I just thought, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Like, that's, that's what it sounds like. You know, it doesn't, it's, it's selfless. It costs us something. It always, doing the right thing, always costs us something. Right? But can you imagine, just imagine with me for a moment, what it would look like to actually be a community of faith that actually follows Jesus. Actually follows Jesus. Right? That actually says, you know what? I understand. It cost me something. In fact, it's probably going to cost me a great deal. And I know I can't do everything, but I know I can do something. And I'm going to do that. Can you imagine what would happen if 200 people did that together? I mean, we, I just got to share a couple weeks ago the fact that, you know, um, I just learned, you know, that this first year that we're going to get to give away $20,000 in our first fiscal year as a church. And I'm so pumped about that. I'm very proud about that. I don't obsess about many numbers. I was taught you obsess about attendance. You obsess about giving, um, uh, offering. Uh, but that's one of those numbers that I do obsess over. How much are we giving away? Because I really believe that is more of a testament, not just in our personal life, but as us as a church. That's more of a testament to what God is doing here and not doing here. Right? And that's going to hugely influence what he's able to entrust us with. And so I was so pumped to find out, you know what, this first year, like we're gonna, we're, if, if things stay as they are now, even if we don't grow at all, uh, we're going to give away over $20,000. But, I mean, how cool would it be for us as a community, right, to actually own what it means to honor God with our finances? And, and I really believe that if we did that two years from now, we could give away over $100,000. Like, that is not outside the realm of possibility. In fact, if we started doing that as a community, we could do that this year. Right, but it takes us actually owning what it means to follow Jesus. Right, actually allowing God to make us uncomfortable, to make sacrifices, to together be a force of good in this world. I mean, how cool would it be? Just dream with me for a second. Five years from now, ten years from now. Right, for us to look around at the churches that we've been a part of planting and our friends who are in other churches in this city and all come together and say, you know what? This month, we're going to end the need for foster care in Lancaster County. How cool would that be? That is possible. I mean, that is, that is possible. Right? For us to say, you know what? Together with our friends, we're going to go into a, a, a village, and we're going to make sure that they have clean water for generations to come. We're going to make sure they have clean water and schools, and it's going to influence not just this generation, but the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like to follow Jesus. And... And the amazing thing is, we can do that. That is possible. Right? This is not an outrageous dream. In fact, we could do a number of these things if tomorrow, if today, we just decided as a people, you know what? I understand obedience is going to cost me something. I understand that God has called me to lay down my life for others, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it alongside people we love, right? And people that I love. Right? That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But I always costs us something.